Welcome back to the show. This is your host, Brian, once again, all by my lonesome. You're listening to The Big Balance, the podcast for anybody looking for clear, simple advice they can actually apply. Give us a little of your time each week, and we'll help you figure out work, life, and everything in between. And I'm by myself again this week because in addition to getting married and all the logistics around that whole thing, John is also getting ready to move. Another fun process that doesn't necessarily leave a lot of time for things like podcasting. So I'm going to try something a little bit different this week, and I'm thinking it's going to land somewhere between lighthearted cheesiness and straight-up cringeworthiness, and I can't wait to find out which it is. Today, I'm going to be joined by Other Brian. That's right. Through the miracle of voice modulation and a constant fear of being alone, I am two hosts at once. I do think this is a good idea. I'm not taking any questions at this time, and I'm going to get on with the show now. Today we're going to talk about something that happened at this point a couple weeks ago by the time this episode airs. Laws and regulations can sometimes be a little slow to keep pace with what's going on in the world, but one country is determined to keep pace with shifting demands in the way we work. Here's some news out of Portugal that has a lot of employees cheering. New legislation was approved that safeguards some elements of the work-life balance. This is purportedly a response to today's large work-from-home environment among Portugal's workforce. The main concern there, and, well, pretty much everywhere, is how much the line continues to blur between work life and home life. Let's spend some time talking about what exactly this new law covers. Considering the majority of the world's workforce isn't Portuguese, let's also talk about some lessons the rest of us can take away from all this. And while we're at it, let's think about what we can all do, even though there likely won't be any rules on the books anytime soon that we can rely on to safeguard our personal time. At the heart of this new legislation are penalties for trying to take over an employee's after-hours time. As long as a company has more than 10 employees, employers could face penalties for calling, emailing, texting, or otherwise contacting employees during off-hours. Beyond that, there's also language about helping employees pay for the expense of working from home, namely internet and utilities costs. These stances aren't necessarily new in Portugal either, right? They put rules in place a while back making work from home a mandate for a lot of workers. That's true. Portugal has been pretty proactive in this arena. But I will note that some wanted these rules to go even farther, putting in place what some are calling a right to disconnect from work-related messages outside of business hours. That was rejected, but all in all, I think this is a really great step towards pushing companies to consider work-life balance. Because I think a lot of people do struggle to do so on their own, and a good number default to being as available as possible for the people they work for, even to their own detriment. So how often would you say you get either called at night or on the weekend? Honestly, not that often. I do occasionally get an after-hours email, though. Taking a look over the last week as an example, I get three to seven emails a day after work ends, and five emails over the weekend. Even though those don't seem like they're big numbers, that could be a lot of hours of additional work if those senders are expecting an immediate response. And when we do respond, we're setting a precedent that we'll keep doing so in the future. And that's exactly what this new law in Portugal seems to counter. And I feel like this rule goes really well with some other laws that are already well-established in the EU, particularly a law called the Working Time Directive. That has a nice ring to it. Very Hollywood. What do you mean? Here, check this out. 
In a world struggling against the tyranny of too many emails, one nation rises up to say no more. Coming this winter, Bruce Willis and John C. Riley star in The Working Time Directive. This is an action movie? Why John C. Riley? Why not John C. Riley? Well, I like it. And I also like the actual Working Time Directive and would love something like this if it was here in the States. Now, if you've been listening to the show for a while, you might remember us talking about this back in episode eight when John and I implored you to actually take your vacation. If you're searching for the title of that episode, it's called Take Your Vacation. And by all means, go back and check it out if you haven't. But to recap this law, there's a few protections that I think are pretty relevant to this topic. Article six of the law says average working time over seven days should not exceed 48 hours. So if we assume a five day work week, a little under 10 hours a day. Now, already that's going to seem a little bit crazy to some U.S. employees in some industries. Well, buckle up. Article 7 guarantees at least four weeks of vacation time with a guaranteed payout of those days if the employee is terminated. And the last one we'll mention here, Article 8 caps night work at eight hours in a 24-hour period. Now, I don't work a job that requires me to stay available 24-7, and I'm thankful for that. But I have a lot of friends in the tech industry where that's the norm. Something breaks overnight, someone's got to be there to fix it. In a lot of other roles, like that of an accountant, there's seasonal crunches as well where you practically live at your job for a few months out of the year. But those guys have employment contracts that clearly define those requirements, and they get paid pretty well for that high availability. So they knew what they were getting into when they took the job. Yeah, but that's kind of the rub. It's one thing to take a job that you know entails high availability. But a lot of people working from home these days didn't sign up for that, right? They've been straight nine-to-fivers going to and from an office to all of a sudden being remote workers with a pretty ill-defined separation of work and home. I look at it this way. Time change happened pretty recently, and I'm always terrible at adjusting. And it takes me the better part of a week to get myself on the right schedule. A week? You don't even change the clock in your car for three months. Yeah, I'm slow to get with the program. Now, let's say I had to move my job to the night shift. Same job, same responsibilities, just graveyard shift. That'd be a big change, even though my job essentially stays the same. So what you're saying is, there'd be maybe some time you'd try to burn the candle at both ends, officially working at night, but trying to get things done during the day too. Yeah, exactly that. I'm familiar with a standard 9 to 5 because I've always worked that way, and those start and stop times are lodged in my brain. Throw in a whole new work-life dynamic, I'm probably going to be a little bit worse for wear trying to navigate the two. And we're on a similar boat right now, with work and home life getting a little bit skewed. Only it's not as noticeable, because at a high level, our hours feel like they're the same. So when our boss reaches out a couple hours after closing time, or we get an urgent email over the weekend, we may not pay as much attention to it or see it as a red flag. But for many people, it is a flag, and over the last couple years, those off-hours demands on our time may be getting more and more common. And that's exactly what Portugal's new rules seek to address. Can I actually go ahead and quote the Minister of Labor and Social Security here? Sure, go ahead. Telework can be a real game-changer if we profit from the advantages and reduce the disadvantages. We consider Portugal one of the best places in the world for these digital nomads and remote workers. Hot Damn, you're smooth. How about taking us into the break as well? Can do. Portugal drew a line in the sand, stemming the tide of draconian after-hours dictates. Yet millions of workers remain stranded in vast and dark oceans of late-night requests. 
They cry out for help, clinging to the flotsam of office furniture grabbed hastily from cubicles before their great exodus. Worry not, my friends, for it is always darkest before the dawn. Coming up next, how can we draw our own line in the sand, once and for all separating work from home? But first a break. If you find yourself fielding more late-night requests, it may be time to set some ground rules, either for yourself or for your coworkers. But before we get to that point, let's do a little recon on how we spend our day. For the next week, I want everybody to start keeping track of your hours. This doesn't have to be anything overly detailed, I'm not asking you to write down what specifically you're up to each day, but it does need to be accurate. Mark time that you spend working, and I mean actually working, during the day. Likewise, track any downtime. How often do we see ourselves getting pulled away from work between the hours of 9 to 5? And we're not looking to validate that time. Maybe you got pulled away for a good reason. Maybe you just got distracted. No judgments, just track accurately. Right, we're not doing this to prove anything about our productivity. Your boss is not going to see these numbers. But we do want to understand our own behavior. If we find ourselves taking more breaks at home than when we were in the office, even if they're short, that helps us understand where our time is going and maybe why we find ourselves working later into the evening. Next, let's go a level deeper. For those hours we spend working, how much is valuable and how much of it is work-from-home filler? What would filler be in this scenario? I define it as any work activities that honestly wouldn't be taking place but for the fact that we are working from home. And it's a couple easy examples of that. If you went from being in meetings one or two hours out of the day when you used to be in the office to three or four now, that may be a ton of filler. It's getting way too common for teams to set up meetings just so everybody can keep tabs on each other. That's not valuable. I was in meetings for 21 hours this week and probably spent another four to six either prepping for meetings or following up on them. And even outside of those meetings, if your boss is asking you to write a ton of new reports each week because they're struggling to keep track of your tasks, that might be helpful for them, but it's still filler for you. That makes sense, but what are we doing with this intel after we have it? Once we know where our time is going, we can figure out how to redirect our energy to be more efficient during the day. If we can be more efficient, we stand a much better chance of wrapping things up by five so we don't have to work later. Let's start by figuring out when we most often start and stop work for the day. We want to get back into a routine of there being a solid line between work and home. That was easy with a commute, and by all means, it's great not having one, but not having that drive does make drawing a hard line in the sand, well, harder. Hopping in a car and driving to an office honestly isn't the important part of that. It's the routine of hopping in a car that's important. So replace that routine. Go for a walk around the block before you sit down to work, and do it again at the end of the day. It sounds simple, but it's a great way to train your brain that it's time to shift between work and home. Now, once we're ready to start our day, we want to eliminate distractions. Let's check that time log for any blocks of work that last less than, say, an hour. What pulled our attention away, and can we remove those distractions? But this goes both ways. We want to block off chunks of time to work effectively. We also need to do the same thing for after hours. Make time for your hobbies and the people in your life, and hold those blocks sacred. That takes us to our next really difficult step, and one that we have talked about before. Setting off-hours blocks 
only works if our coworkers respect them. The worst way to handle this is to simply ignore it up until the point where somebody reaches out for something. We want to be proactive here. Work with your team early in the week or month or whatever the span of your projects usually run. Build a solid game plan for how that work can get done in the span of a normal week. No overtime. Things may still come up that you don't plan for, but having a strategy in place helps make sure those are exceptions and never the rule. Let everybody know, politely but firmly, when you're logging off for the day. If they need to reach you, it has to be before that time. That's an uncomfortable thing to ask, though. I agree that it feels like that, but remember, you're a human being working with other human beings. You know, we all have responsibilities and lives outside of work. Trust me when I say that your coworkers understand. Easy example, my wife takes classes and is out of the house every Thursday. I've had plenty of conversations that I'll be unavailable so I can take care of my kid at that time. And even that's a little bit far, right? Because I, I shouldn't have to feel like I need to have a reason or make an excuse for logging off at the end of the day. In the end, the ability to say no is something that we need to get more comfortable with. One that seems obvious that a lot of people don't think about is having a dedicated workspace. And I'm thinking of Andy specifically here. For anybody not familiar, Andy is an occasional guest host who, for a long time, could not get used to working from home and miss the office. And his tune changed a bit recently, and it was around the time that he finally set up a really permanent office area in his house. That might not be the entire reason for his perception shift, but I do think it played a part. I do want to go back to the idea of a commute again. Beyond acting as a work-life barrier, it's also a good decompression time. Sometimes we have a rough day, and having that 30 minutes of solitude makes sure we don't bring the bad vibes home. That's a really good point, and- Well, thank you. You're welcome. And one that I think requires a bit more thought. We're not just talking about physical separation from work, right? We need an emotional separation as well. What activities will help us de-stress? That could be a hobby or honestly just sitting in a dark, quiet room for a while. One of the great things about having the flexibility with our time is that we get to choose what to replace that commute time with. As long as we stick to our guns and block out that time for ourselves and make sure everybody knows it. Hopefully some of these tips will help everybody start down the path of separating work from home. Maybe there are some tips and tricks out there that you listening have tried, and by all means, reach out to us and let us know what works for you. But however you do it, make sure that you do take some steps forward towards this goal. The vast majority of us aren't in Portugal, and I don't think the rest of us can necessarily count on these kind of regulations coming to our doorstep. It all comes back to the core element of this show. There are a thousand things advocating for your time to be spent working. Deadlines, clients, our bosses, the need for a paycheck. But we're the only ones who can advocate for preserving time in our own lives. So be your best advocate. Thanks for tuning in again to The Big Balance. Help us out by leaving us a like or rating. And please do drop a comment. We'd love to hear from you. Special music this week was Lock and Load by Hayden Folker. You can find details, including where to download, in the show notes. Until next time. Ugh, hope everybody appreciated this gimmick, because it is painful. I'm gonna get going and get some tea. My throat is killing me.